Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Programa. This show was written, produced, and engineered in Huichin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the East Bay Area. So on tonight's show, we're going to discuss the role of money in our lives and how far its influence reaches into our present lives. We're going to discuss the history of the value that we place on the paper currency. And we're going to take a look at other possibilities on how we can view money in order to answer if money is truly the root of all evil. Or if there is something that we collectively haven't quite looked at. All this and more on tonight's uh, show, Full Circle. I'm your host, David de la Gran. So stay with us. All right. All right. Let's get into it. So welcome back to Full Circle, a show where the underrepresented can apply and become apprentices of this fabulous radio station and can gain the opportunity to voice their concerns and also insight, such as you will be hearing tonight. I want to let you know before we get started that we will be using, I will be using language tonight that may be sensitive to some of our listeners. It's a, it's a language that becomes necessary when dealing with the transcendental aspects of our collective consciousness. I'm speaking of such words as God, spirit, sin, Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, etc. With that being said, tonight we're going to be discussing money. Not the administration of it or how to get more of it. And we're not going to ask you for any today. But we're going to discuss the far-reaching ramifications of its influence in our lives throughout the generations. From when we supposedly traded things such as seashells to the accumulation of commodities down to paper money and the future exchange of monies such as cyber currency. We're going to ask the question, is money truly evil? Is there a way to look at money in a positive light? And so getting started with it then, I'm going to present to you a little a little thing here about empire. Anyways, you know the drill. Empire, right? It's dark. It's scary. It's coming after us. Not really, though. It's not as bad as you think. In fact, it's kind of funny because empire has to be that way. It has to be a big scary thing because it's a big bully. But it's not really that deep. It's just on the surface. It's just an illusion. Only on the surface, even though empire is a reality of our daily lives. So let's talk about it. The Mongol Empire, the Roman Empire, the Sassanid Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the British Empire, all these empires. But what is empire? The way that I'm defining it is anything that can be attributed to or has the image of or belonging to an emperor, a king, a ruler, a system in place, a system that's perpetuated by any ruler or ruling class that serves the functionality and order in our lives and which governs our states and our day-to-day operations. From the function of the family to the community to the city 
and by extension, the world. Or simply as Webster puts it, it's an extensive group of states or countries under a single supreme authority, formerly especially an emperor or an empress. Now, a tool which has created empire and societies uh, is the exchange of, of goods and the tool by which these goods are traded you know, it's very significantly throughout the, throughout the ages, depending on the hands that rule it. Now, whether it was by accident or by design, money, being paper currency controlled by a centralized bank, uh, came to replace commodity trade and actual physical trade and barter. And the introduction of paper to replace, or, you know, the introduction of paper currency, you know, it served as an ideal method of making transactions easier. And, you know, again, by design or by accident, it can serve the common people to have like a means of trade that circumvents, you know, the spoiling of our products. Money, though, money gives us the most tangible aspect of empire because without money, the whole idea comes to nothing or comes to chaos. And it's that value upon which the whole scheme rides. But this system is just another convention, you know, it's just a, a, arguably a better one, but it's, it's still just a means of trade. And this system brings us certain luxuries and necessities, such as potable water, homes, utilities. At its base, it gives us food and shelter. After that, well, it depends on the ruler of the empire. But money is so important to the fabric of society that the rulers of every kingdom have minted or printed some form of connection to divinity or God in their currency, even down to the US dollar. In the case of Rome during the first century, the coin or the denarius of Tiberius, Caesar, read, Worshipful son of the god, Augustus Pontificus Maximus. Oh, in, in any case, uh, the amassing of wealth, like gold, has always been the priority of those with, with might. The amassing of wealth has notoriously served the needs of those in power. And those that are near the thrones have amassed similar wealth. More wolves in the pack. More mouths to feed in that regard. And using their God-given might to do as they will, thus make, might makes right, the leading powers of the world have historically been the most bloodthirsty. I mean, look at England. They're essentially or literally Vikings. And for some reason, we're okay with that. And by, by England, sorry, I mean the royal family. Uh, as we've seen through the trends of history, wars have been the costliest of expenses and the most advantageous for the winner. The causes of war have typically been an expansion of the empire or kingdom or whatever, fueled by one family's desire for more land and riches under the guise of like secured borders, protections against invasions, barbarians, etc., etc. When the winner comes out, the spoil goes to the ruling class. Now, we also know that throughout history, the idea of God has been used over and over again in order to give credit to the laws and impositions of the ruling class, up to even making themselves unto God in order to remain unquestioned. We have seen countless personifications of God throughout time and countless religions that have been constructed around them. And with every new God, there comes the adherence to certain norms and demands that are associated with serving these gods, up to and including severe atrocities against our fellow man. Now, not all versions of God have been used thus, but mostly all versions of God have been manipulated in some way to achieve one end or another. Usually a great master or representation of God will appear in a society, and after they leave, the followers or the ruling class will take their dispensations and alter 
their inherently beautiful message. Speaking, speaking of Christianity as an example, the persona of Jesus, uh, speaking about a God who says, love thy neighbor and treat others as you would want to be treated, is a far cry from the atrocities that have been committed by the Roman Catholic Church. I'm certain that every major religion has the, some sort of contradiction to contend with. But yeah, you know, we'll take a look into other things like, you know, what the Lord Krishna, Buddha, Jesus have said and how they point to something that's definitely different from, from, uh, from empire. But in short, you know what? Let, let's continue on. Let's take a small little, little musical break. We're going to come back and we're going to keep talking about all this good stuff. All right. Let's hit it. Back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. You just heard The Power of Equality by Red Hot Chili Peppers off their 1994 album release, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. My name is David Lagran, and tonight we're talking about money and our seemingly symbiotic connection to it throughout all the ages. I'm referring to our willful and conscious participation in a local and global economy, regardless of which method of trade is in place regardless of which civilization you find yourself in, because contrary to what we might tell ourselves, the choice is always there to participate or not. There seems like there's no getting around it, though. Even, even the great masters who have sprouted up here and there understand the contention that exists between the divine spirit and the material nature of our world. We have talked about empire and its use of God in order to affirm or accredit all aspects of its own decisions. It's mean empire. And now I'd like to turn the mirror onto ourselves and see ourselves in a direct relation with the system 
that some of us have created, but that all of us are a part of. And to begin with, we're going to talk a little bit about money and its relationship in our lives. And when I say our lives, I do mean myself, our immediate family, everybody. The way we interpret money in our relations day to day is the way that we're going to interpret our connection to each other. Our connection to the material world that surrounds us. That is essentially the crux of what we're talking about here. And as quoted by Dr. Needleman, doc, uh, it is it's the awareness of our relationship to the currency of the world that helps us understand the connection to the material world, thereby understanding the connection to the immaterial world. Because if we know the limits of what we can see, then we can begin to explore the limits of what's out there. I was kind of paraphrasing a bit, but there you go. So first, understanding this reality, understanding the reality which is material, and then being able to expand into other realities, the idea becomes this. If it does boil down to us, if we hold the key and every little action and purchase that we make is very important, because, you know, the, the banks don't answer to us. Uh, the banks don't owe us anything. They owe us no transparency to us as far as how they use our money. And we've seen the way that they use it. Obviously, I mean, obviously it's to make more money, you know, but if they're doing that by ways that are provable to be unethical, then, you know, personally, I feel strongly with having my deposits in that particular bank. And since no bank owes us any credibility, then what are we left with? An ultimatum? They're just holding us hostage, man. Now, the issue, I believe, is convenience, because when it comes to when it comes down to it, Something is so convenient, it's really hard to let go of those conveniences. If I asked you to walk on a road that was paved versus traveling alongside of it, which is all mud, you might just take the road that was paved. But if I told you that it was paved with something, I don't know, something that's not good, would you really walk on it? I mean, there's a certain morality which is not existing in the framework of getting money. And, or, uh, and that morality, when we subdue ourselves to it, we lose ourselves because we... We, I mean, we do gain interest and we do gain from the negative use of this machine of capitalism. The more that we scrape the edges and gain from that way of being, the more that you have in your pot. And I mean, that's not necessarily a great thing, but hey, everybody's struggling, right? But you know what? That right there is another fallacy because it's never enough. But we do have people. We got the abundance of resources that exist. And we need to understand that sharing is caring. In Spanish, there's a saying that goes, Dios no hizo la pobreza. La pobreza lo hacemos nosotros al no, al no compartir lo que tenemos. Cuando no compartimos lo que tenemos. Basically, God did not make poverty. Poverty, we make ourselves when we do not share the things that we, we have. I forgot where I read it, but I think it was in Dr. Needleman's book, um, Money and the Meaning of Life. We talked about a culture of giving. And here it was almost like a competition to give more and more. And you would grow your product, and the more you're able to give, the better. But yeah, I mean, that's a very altruistic, idealistic way of looking at things. And we're not going to talk about alternatives to the system that we have now, because we've tried a lot of different things in history, and this particular one won out in this present day. Now, I don't believe that the, pre that the problem is the system itself, but more so how it is that we morally use the system. When we give up our freedom to decide what is morally good, that's when we start getting into a tough situation. Now, banks, 
and all the other Fortune 500 companies that have a great way of making us feel that everything is okay. How they supply us with health care, how they give us jobs, how they give us money, paid time off, and all the different little benefits and perks that come along with it, like stocks, 401k. I mean, they pride themselves on these things. And insidious as they are, they champion diversity. And they tout that about as well. But you know what? The only diversity that I see is on the front lines, the teller lines. That's where you're going to find your, your so-called diversity. You get less and less of this diversity when you start going up that ladder. The people with the big paychecks. But they, I mean, they, they do that. And they got their little philanthropic ends as well in order to be able to say, hey, look at me, I'm all right. I'm a part of the community. But it's as they say, sheep, I mean, wolf in sheep's clothing. I feel like that needs to be understood. And they're all like that. Because the whole thing is that we're, we're holding up their game. And they expect us to play by it. And they, they, they make all the rules. And when I say they, I mean the collective of all the people who hold the monopoly of our, of our trading systems. So we buy into the game and we don't know any other way out of it. And we know, we know all the inequalities and endless games that they play in order to scrape the edges and garner more for themselves. Every little twist and turn that they do politically. I don't need to explain that to you. I'm sure you know more than I do. But the fact that there's no hope for a movement from the grassroots is a pretty stark reality. I say there's no hope or there seems to be no hope because it was sub- systematically subjugated after the May Day riots back in the day. They demonized communism, Marxism, socialism, the unions, through McCarthyism. So you got all kinds of well-meaning people who fought for these basic things, right? Like social security, minimum wage, the weekend, you know, uh, and it was by uniting, you know, by having this kind of like boots on the ground grassroots movement, you know, back in the day that we were able to see how, how we as a humanity united we're able to actuate all these different changes. All right. And that's definitely not something that, that capitalism is, we know it is going gonna, is gonna to allow. The decision really does come down to us. It's more than just where you put your money. It's a, it's a decision of how you're going to hold those financial institutions accountable for how they use our money. I feel like I need to listen to some more music right now. Let's hit it. <laughs> Just couldn't get hired Saw a sign in a grocery store Help is light And we need some more I got a job Job where I get a replacement. You will get the mop and clean the dirty floor. 
never, never quit my brand new job. Working all day and I'm working all night and I'm working all day. And welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. Thank you for listening. You just heard I Got a Job by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Now this show is an example of what can be produced by the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, where the underrepresented community can gain access to their airwaves and speak to lovely people just like yourselves. Now, I'd like to take a moment to send condolences uh, out to the families who are affected by the banks and their allegiance to the atrocities in which they are invested. To those families and the pain in which they find themselves. Now, there are no words. Solo lágrimas y fortaleza. Adelante, si se puede. Yes, we can. If only courage could birth in the hearts of the populace myself included. Now, we spoke about people thus far in their relationship as purveyors of empire, you know, that upper, upper crust of society, and then peons like myself who hold up the system on our backs. Now, I've titled tonight's show Render Under Caesar because Gaius Julius Caesar was the catalyst for bringing Rome from a republic into an, into an empire, and subsequently the name Caesar shifted from a man to a title. And the question arises, what exactly are we rendering unto Caesar? In order to begin to postulate and to delve into that matter, uh, we got to take a little bit of insight into the power of money throughout history. And, and to begin to do so, I prepared a little poem. All right, here it is. It's entitled, Vanity and Vexation of Spirit. <coughs> Men of Antiquity, your names written into the memory of man, your privilege to move about the will of nations in however your kingships or authorities chose. Beginning at great Alexander and the demise of your great empire at the hands of elemental biological influences, where with your great army and wealth you could not fend off the capacity of disease and without the foresight to relinquish control to following generations, where did your accomplishments find you in the end? Your loyal friends dead at your command. This is vanity and vexation of spirit. Scipio. After such a struggle against Carthage and Hannibal, that even having pushed back the Carthaginian force to Africa and accepting their surrender, still even Rome thought your rise to power too sudden and they did not trust you with their empire and rather politically overthrew your intent denied your place and victory and spit you out of their earnings, spit you out of Rome, into which you engraved in stone, 
ingrata patria, neosa quidem me abes. Thankless country, thou shalt not possess even my bones. And Hannibal, fighting without regard or with contempt for death herself, fighting for revenge and homeland, how did the loyalties of declining empire serve you in your valiant means? How, when the powers of land and titles were used to sway allegiances, did the fatal asp sink its teeth into your fragile ankle and unto the death the yoke of empire weighed heavily? Still, the fervor of your efforts were too dangerous for the rising empire. Rome, who could not await your death, and soon rushed the poison into your courageous entrails. Neither of your dreams did align with your respective empires, and this too is much vexation and vanity. Great Khan, greatest military mind who at the bold age of 66, still swinging depths in personal hand over the will of your choosing, conquest being the fuel of your psyche, like breathing, wildfire of empire at your discretion, what became your end? When you left the unconquered world at the task of your son, could it not have been enough, the empire you carved out? But even in death, the desire for the whole world was deep in your belly. But what would it gain a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? This too is vanity and vexation of spirit. Eunice Antiochus, leader of the first servile war against the empire of Rome, successful though you were in a, for a few good years wherein you established your own kingdom, joined by poor Sicilians to throw off the yoke of the invaders and routing up slaves in rebellion. How did the luxuries of the free man serve you in your end? Minting coins with your image and following the traditions of your lords and masters, unsustainable as it became. You became easy, easy pickings in the economic war of attrition. Found in your cave with your four degenerates, you who foresaw your inevitable end, yet with an artist's grace knew how best to meet your end. And great Caesar, dragged by the fates, the Ides of March did bid you a brutal farewell on the tale of empire, wherein dearest friends, closer than blood, did draw your blood with crimson tips. Where was your empire and the great efforts to realize power? Did it save you in the end? A god in flesh, a Caesar. No, swallowed by the hands of politics in the scheming of men's minds and the control of power in how they see it fit. Et tu, brute. <laughs> All right. This poem was entitled Vanity and vexation of spirit. I do want to mention something real quick here, and that's the story of Solomon. Now, this the story of Solomon lends itself wonderfully to this topic. And so I'm going to give you like a little shortened, condensed version of the story. Um, so Solomon was, was, uh, had a boon from God, right, which was to receive understanding. And he inherited a great kingdom from his father David. He also had a ring of power, which had the name of God inscribed on it. In his quest to build God's temple, he realized that, you know, that he needed a certain item, the, the so-called Shamir. Uh, so he asked the demons that are under his control you know, to tell him where it is. And they say they don't, they don't know, but that maybe the king of the demons would know. 
And so he sets out and he successfully captures, you know, this king of the demons, Asmodeus, who then tells him where to find the Shamir. He finally gets it and, uh, and he, he has everything under his control now, right? And, um, and the demon king asks, tells him, you know, that asks him to unbind him. And Solomon only agrees to do that if the king of the demons agrees or, you know, agrees to tell him what his source of power is over mankind. So the demon goes about and he, and he, and, and, um, and he basically, you know, he says to him, I'll let you know what my power is if you give me your ring of power and if you let me go, if you unbind me. So that's what Solomon does. You know, he, he gives him his ring, he unbinds him and what happens, what happens next, right? Um, the demon basically like takes over. This is what happens in the story. So thing is, and I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going here. I'm going gonna to keep going. So like he gives up that, which is like very, really important to him. He gives up the ring of power and he loses everything. He becomes a beggar, you know, remembering that he's, that he was a king. And he writes the book, Ecclesiastes, you know, all his vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, the point is that, you know, he gave up his last couple of cents in order to buy a fish, right? And then he takes it home to his wife and she cuts it open. And lo and behold, the ring with the inscription of God's name is on there, right? Once he gets this ring back, and, you know, I don't know if he had to, like, walk back to his kingdom or, wh or whatever. But when he does get back to his kingdom, immediately the demon, the demon goes away. And he reassumes his throne. Now, the thing about this throne is that, I mean, it's a very lofty symbol. But it, it re I think it represents metaphorically, you know, us, like who we, who we are as individuals. You know, like they say the temple, right? Uh, the throne. So, I mean, the throne could be considered the heart, I guess. But it has to do with us, though. It's a, it's, it's a big metaphor. Now, I was wondering if this demon, is it, it what does it represent? Because all the little demons in the stories, you know, that we hear, they're all metaphorical sim symbols. What does the king of the demons represent? And I think that it represents ego, it represents separateness because ego thinks of itself as separate from, from being God. I am me. I am my own identity. But, you know, God is everything. So, but anyways, thinking of mind and the spirit, I mean, sorry, thinking of mind and the mind as being separate is the creation of, of, of material reality. And that's the key to understanding the next thing that we're going to be talking about. So, without much more ado real quick here, I believe what we're going into right now, I think we're going to go into a little, a little, a little song again. Let's hear this. Find myself singing in the same songs every
This is Pacifica Radio, KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. My name is David de la Gran, and you're listening to Full Circle. You just heard Blind Melon performing Walk off of their 1995 album release, Soup. Now, we're talking about Empire, and we're talking about this show is called Render Untrue Caesar. Now, I'm not here to proselytize, I'm not here to preach. I'm not here on a soapbox stand. This is just what I've read, how I interpret things with my mind. And but yeah, you know, to the best of my knowledge, this is what I know. It, since in my personal life I haven't like studied much of other scriptures and you know, I've studied mostly the Western Bible, I'm going to talk about how the representation of Jesus spoke in terms of material and spoke in terms of money. And we, we've said that money is the best way to examine the material world. And so therefore we have the words of Jesus which come out to us from different parts of scripture, most notably, and, um, and here's the scripture, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here. In the Bible, the Pharisees, their disciples, and Herodians ask Jesus, is it lawful to give tribute under Caesar or not? The response came, why tempt me, you hypocrites? He continues, show me the tribute money. And they, and they brought unto him a, pe a penny or denarius. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then he saith unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. Now with these simple words, we're given the practical functionality of the material and the immaterial, the world of the world and the world of the spirit as explained by Jesus and all of the great teachers throughout time. Now, there have been many great teachers throughout time that have shown us the different subtleties that are involved in our relationship with the immaterial. We can take, for example, Buddha and the Eightfold Path. We can take, for example, Krishna, who taught the Bhagavad Gita to Arjun, and we can see the relationship between the great masters, the great teachers throughout all time, past, present, and future, who are teaching us how to communicate with the material and the immaterial to understand the transformation from one to the other. The acceptance and the peace within and the perfect balance that creates harmony within the self. For example, when Krishna was taught was teaching Arjun the principles of yoga, the internal battle that was fought there on the plains of Kurukshetra was an internal battle. And when you look at it in a metaphorical sense, Every character in the plot represents a different facet of the human tendency. Same as in the story of Solomon. All the different demons represent representations of man's desires. You know, we can call them faults, whatever. And Jesus is always pointing out that the kingdom is within. And he says, uh, I am in God and God is in you and you are in me. You know, um, all that. What is it? The force is one. I'm one with the force. <laughs> Um, our Lord God is one, one, one. There's no separateness. But it's only until you've seen that for real and experienced it and brought it into living reality that you can, you know, that you can be consider yourself to be like a son of God. Let's just say that, you know, every individual. And we have the term son of man. So son of God would be the next step. It's a different reality within the same reality. Understanding the reality that is within this reality. Understanding the godliness in everything. And treating it as it should be treated. 
you know, as you would treat yourself. That's why it's, you know, it's good to pray, you know, and it's good to, you know, pray for mercy for these rich bastards, you know, because uh, they're the most lost. They're doing the most hurt. They're super selfish, which means that they're super separate, super ego. I mean, if you can imagine Asmodeus, as we were talking about in the Solomon story, sitting on the throne of Solomon, just tearing it up, you know, just loving it. But, I mean, I can't really say loving it because I don't think that, you know, demon really knows what love is. But, you know, hey, that's a whole other story. You know, the more that one aligns with God and divinity, the more that one is able to wield, like, the will and the word. You know, the word being the verb, the word being action, uh, the word inaction <laughs> and inaction. Uh, because the more that one aims, you know, to align oneself, you know, one is able to see. One has awareness. And awareness is the key. Awareness of the present moment, awareness of the divinity within the moment, and the subtle perceptions that come with every moment, leading into the next. Now this awareness of being one, being one with the moment, that's where true value lies. Because then you're able to give, give, and give more. And the more that you get value from the universe, the more that you're able to give. And your value comes in being able to give in your giving. Now, we've known these answers all along. You know, they're written inside of our hearts. But some people have done a very good job in forgetting and hardening their hearts and paving them over with all kinds of badness. But anyways, you know, Jesus comes in, right? And, and he understands that life is a little bit more than just meat. And they ask him, you know, is it lawful to pay the tribute money? And he's like, really? For real? Is, is that what's important to you, man? All right, all right, sure, whatever. I'm going to humor you. Okay, show me the coin. And, you know, you have to understand the setting of, you know, the historical setting of this time right now. There's a big tax revolt going on. You know, um, they're inside the temple at this point. I mean, you're not supposed to have like graven images in the temple. But yet, you know, he asks them to bring to bring a, a, a coin out and it has this graven image of, you know, of Caesar on it. Right. And, um, you know, uh what is it like, you know, like the people of the, of the day in the, the Jewish folk, they wanted to make Jesus a king. It's in, it's in the Bible somewhere. And, uh, and, and he didn't want it. He didn't want to do that. So, you know, like he's, he's not about empire, you know what I'm saying? But so what is he about? You know, he's about the transcendental. He's about looking at, looking at, uh, a whole different way of, of looking at this thing. I mean, as is quoted by, um, I forgot who quote, who said it, but if you give the things that are of God, the things that are of God, there is no room left for Caesar. It's kind of like a subtle sedition. You know, like that's, that's, where, that's where Jesus is coming from a lot, a lot of the times, you know, and it's, it's really crazy. But anyways, in the midst of all the, the bedlam, you know, there's a calm stance, you know, that still hears like the wind and the roaring beneath and the city that sleeps and the vibration through it all, the one, the one God, the Lord God is one, no separateness, one. That's the teaching of all humanity. That's the teaching of all the great masters. Material reality, maya, illusion, the senses, ultimately ego, is all separate. You know, that separates you from me, 
me from you, us from we, it's a separated reality. You know, we all live in individual houses, our individual income brackets and labels. But until we can identify as one, we're never truly going to be free. We're never going to be liberated because we, we don't understand kingdom. We don't understand like the, the, um, that we, we don't have anything to give. And giving is of the most value because the more that you get, the more that you can give. And you get from the universe, from the source, from the source of all that is, the I am. It's like, I'm nothing else. I just am. It's just one. One, you know? And Jesus taught about that singularity as well. The great Master Krishna as well, talking about oneness, talk about yoga, a scientific practice to attaining the Godhead. You know, your head full of God. There is no other. Well, what Jesus is saying anyways is just start there. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and the rest of that stuff will come later. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm proselytizing, right? But, you know, the first, like, the first words of Jesus in the book of John, you know, he says, what seekest thou? You know, what are you looking for? They answer, where do you live? He says, come and see. You know, it's a transactional thing. Come, open your eyes, take a look, and it, guess what? It's going to be given unto you. What are you seeking? The kingdom. You know, so I like to take um, refuge in the, in, in the words that he says, um, lest we should offend. That's another part of the scripture. I forget what part it's at. But, it, you know, he, Jesus goes out and he actually pays the temple tax. Um, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, he actually, he really, he really does. Yeah, he's, he's talking about, uh, in, in that particular verse, he's talking about the unrighteous mammon. Um, mammon is, is like a, I guess like a, like, like a demon or something like that. Or it's, it represents wealth. Um, but anyways, Jesus says, if you're not faithful in the unrighteous mammon, um, it, what I believe that means is that if you're not able to deal righteously, let's say with unrighteous things, which, uh, which are the least of things, um, then you're not going to be faithful in the greater things. So if you're unfaithful in the righteous mammon, the unrighteous mammon, which is a low thing, a low vibration, it's dense, like paper money, then you're going to be unfaithful in the righteous things. So he says, you know, therefore make friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. You know, for, and he, and he, and he goes into that. The thing, the thing is, you know, that Jesus is basically saying, look for the kingdom within you. Separate what your, you know, like your, your allegiance to, to, to Caesar and which, basically is just throwing in your face, which one is superior, you know, like the kingdom of, um, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of men. And it is really just like a few men. It's only a, just a couple of men that, 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 that control the world. I mean, that's what empire is, right? So, you know, choose your allegiance. It's about, it's about subtle sedition. <laughs> another, another funny thing is that, like, you know, um, it, there's a saying that goes, you know, God doesn't ask for much. He asks for everything. And, um, and that's definitely something. It's kind of it's like Islam. It's, it's surrender. 
that I think is the is is the meaning of um, of, of rendering under Caesar. It's understanding that the the material reality that that exists around us is pales in significance to the to the immaterial awareness of knowing that we are um, truly at the helm of our of our lives and and that we have the power to choose you know um, which which reality we're going to manifest in our lives with that I'm gonna leave it here in the good old hands of James Brown Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine here on 94.1. That was the godfather of soul, Mr. James Brown, singing Try Me. I've been your host for this evening, David Lagran, and we've been talking about money and its relationship to our intangible soul. And we've been diving deep to figure it out. Thanks for being with me. At this point, we need to take a look at the way forward. Since we've been looking at the past and the present so far, as well as a look at the different timeless states that we have within us as well. <laughs> but since we can't see them with precision and uh, our many multiple and probable futures, uh, we look to either like, you know, fact-based uh, speculation or to our inspirations in art, guided by that mysterious hand of the muses, which oftentimes represents truth to us through the different mediums of art and artists. Uh, one such person who had a fantastic view on humanity is Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Uh, here, our technical director, Free Will and Franklin, Sterlin, uh, put together a little clip that highlights uh, where it is that we might be headed. Let's take Excellent. Now maybe we'll be able to get some things straightened up. We may indeed. 
economics of the future are somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We have eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. You've got it all wrong. It has never been about possessions. It's about power. Power to do what? To control your life, your destiny. That kind of control is an illusion. Really? Then what will happen to us? There's no trace of my money. My office is gone. What will I do? How will I live? This is the 24th century. Material needs no longer exist. Then what's the challenge? challenge, Mr. Offenhaus, is to improve yourself, to enrich yourself. Enjoy it. Quick and sweet and very potent. Words from Star Trek with a view to one of our probable futures. And speaking of probable futures, you know, we can... I wonder if um, if I can say that to have spiritual value, if that's going to be the next system of value, you know, to, to, to have that, that, that kind of like spiritual spiritual strength and to be able to give that that kind of healing and that kind of like you know like it says you know what did the star trek thing said better yourself um i would like it if it said better the self that i think would be would would be awesome because that your whole yourself thing it's it's really separate and that the idea of 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 us being separated needs to just we need to cut that out as humanity is it's not it's not serving us it hasn't served us in the past it hasn't served us now and it's not going to serve us in the future um understanding our our oneness our our um connection to each other that's what's going to um that's what should be the the future the future currency of the world you know um that that ability to give 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 and everything just be based on on that because you can give anything you know, and um, there are so many different ways that, you know, the intangible spirit um, pre- presents itself in this material world. You know, so any one of these, you know, can be can be a tool for us to, to use, you know, um, 
I mean, yeah, you know, like use money. I mean, right now, that's not that, that's what we're in right now. That's the world that we live in here. And if we can't, you know, use this one, if we can't use what we got, then we're messing up. You know, what does it say? Be faithful in the in in the least of things, which is you know, money, material reality, and you and you'll be you'll be way better off like in other higher things. You know, um, spirit, like real real power. Let's look at the way forward. Let's consider how we're going to move forward as people in this in this reality. Because I can't cite a time whenever the, the lower classes had any access to the war spoils, even though it's through their labor and sacrifice through those that those things were gained. All right. I want to let you all know a couple things that are going on. Uh, we have... Um, before we call it a night here, there's a pop-up resistance concert uh, with uh, award-winning musicians that's going to happen on uh, on Thursday, July 26th from at 7.30 p.m. at the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalist uh, place. It's a 1924 Cedar Street. It's a Bart, Bart, Bartable. Anyways, you're going to have a couple of really good um, artists there and you know they're going to be um, talking about some good stuff there. So again, you know, it's a pop-up resistance concert, uh, Thursday, July 26th at 7.30 p.m. at the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists. I do also want to let you know, uh, wonderful cumbiamba going on. Um, Malditoria is going to be there. Calafia Armada, Combo Teseta. That's Saturday, July 21st at 9 p.m. at La Estrellita, 446 East 12th Street. Go check that out. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host this evening, David Lagran. On the board, we got Steve Grievous. And our tech, tech assists here, we got Kendall, we got Sharon from Dry Longso Rising. Hey, stay tuned. Next week, we're going to have the intro show for Dry Longso. Yeah. Stay tuned right now for La Onda Bajita.